I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. It's another writer's routine. Today, our guest is a farmer by day and a storyteller by night. His name is James Oswald. He runs a 350-acre livestock farm up in Scotland in Fife. And during the day, he herds his ewes, uh, he ploughs the land, uh, and then during the night... He has written a whole range of crime and fantasy stories. Uh, He's found great success with his Inspector Tony McLean books. And after eight of those, he's back with a brand new series. It's all about Constance Fairchild. It's called No Time to Cry. And it starts with a brutal murder in an office. Now, we'll talk about the writing room that he built to spec above his garage. There's also some chatter about the classic car that he's trying to fix just below him in the actual thing. Uh, You can find out why he writes seven days a week as well, and why for him, research isn't all it's cracked up to be. I'm one of these truly lazy people who put a lot of effort into being lazy. Uh, I'm also a little bit shy about and nervous about going to the police and asking them questions. I don't want to waste their time. So I've kind of developed a strategy of working around it. And You'll find in that book, she's a police officer. She's working in a small team undercover. We don't even name what department that's in. So stay there, it's all on the way in this week's Writer's Routine. Hello, yes, this is Writer's Routine, at the show where we take a look inside the daily diary of someone creative. Before we get into it, let me very quickly remind you of the single greatest way that you can help out this show if you're enjoying what we're doing. And that's if if you're listening to us on iTunes, head to their podcast store and leave us a review. Find Writer's Routine, write something nice about us if you've got the time. Drop us five stars, please, because it, it helps with their strange, unknowing, uh, pesky iTunes chart. And it lets other people who could use the help of our authors find the help of our authors it'll become more available to them it's honestly the best way that you can help us out just head over to the itunes podcast store and leave writer's routine a review so let's get into this week's episode then taking a peek inside the working day of james oswald james is a cattle and a sheep farmer up in scotland during the day then at night he locks himself away in a purpose-built writing room if we all had the luxury uh, which is just above his garage and he writes stories mainly crime stories now He's published eight books in the Inspector Tony McLean series, four in another fantasy saga, The Ballad of Sir Tony Benfro, uh, and his new book, it tells the tale of Constance Fairchild. It's called No Time to Cry. It's a crime book about police procedural matters, although, as as we've already heard earlier on, 
he doesn't really do that much research into any of the procedures, just kind of watches the bill, I think. Uh, you can find out more about that in just a sec. Also, how he manages his day when he's got 50 sheep to tend to, and also how he finds the time to write when he's been up at six o'clock in the morning to get to work on the farm. There's a lot of talk as well about the names of characters in this show, because James pretty much made up his whole story when he simply thought of the name Constance of his lead character. So if you're one of those that's nerdy for names, I promise you'll love this. Also, we'll get a top writing tip that may change the way you work forever. It's from one of the most successful non-fiction authors uh, in, in recent years. That's on the way in just a sec after we dive into it with James Oswald then this week, starting as always with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I see the farmyard out the window in front of my computer. Uh, I see one of my three dogs upside down on the rug. I see a desk which is more mess than desk. Uh, and I see a keyboard. Where are you in your house? I've got a writing room which is a, a large, enormously large room above the garage. I've built a house on the farm for myself. So I, part of the design was a writing room and it's absolutely brilliant. It's just like it sounds. It's huge. I mean, that's the one thing. It's huge. It's like 80 square metres or something, which is bigger than the average wimpy home, apparently. And uh, I, I just went over the top building it and thought, what's the best I can possibly have? Well, well let's expand on that then. I've chatted to over 40 authors now, and I can't really think of one, although they would all like to, who have built a writing room to spec. <laughs> when you had your whole imagination to play with, you were building above your garage. What needed to be in there for you? Well, it needed to have room for my guitars, because I, I play the guitar very badly, but I do like to pick up my guitar and strum when I'm thinking. Uh, it needed room for a telly. I was gonna, I wanted to have room for a grand piano, though I, I can't really play the piano. Uh, I haven't got a grand piano either, but um, it just, I just, it grew out of being the room above the garage, though, because the garage needed to be big enough for my classic cars, so... Um, it, it goes. It, it gets worse. <laughs> so there's a lot of different interests here. Yes. Then. Um, with the guitars, with the with, with the piano that you can't really play with the classic cars. What do you have sitting beneath you in the garage? I have uh, a 1967 Alfa Romeo Duetto Spider, which I bought as a wreck in about I think 1990, and it's taken me however many years that is 28 years to restore and it's still an ongoing project is it drivable it does drive yes i drove it la the weekend before last which was kind of its last drive before the winter sets in and they start putting salt on the roads and it's great fun but it's it needs a, a decent paint job and it's needs the suspension tweaked and all sorts of stuff but i i actually love tinkering with old cars more than driving them I like tinkering with things, taking them apart, putting them back together again. Uh, on the walls of the room that you've designed to spec, what can we see? Uh, I do have a big whiteboard on wheels that I can wheel around because I use that for, for plotting out ideas, themes and things um, and just scribbling down notes and brainstorming when I'm, when I'm writing. So there's usually um, things written on that like what did they do with the head question mark and then an arrow pointing to something else like they ate it or <laughs> little things like that you know which would alarm people who wandered up there by mistake <laughs> brilliant we'll come to it in just a sec i just want to firmly get to grips with where you're actually writing so on your bookshelves what can we see what are you reading it's a um a lot of um crime books i get sent an awful lot of like proof copies from publishers hoping that i'll write nice things about them that they can put on the cover um, which I 
I'm a really slow reader, so I get don't get round to most of them, which is a shame because there's loads of books there that I really want to read, and I'm just thinking soon I'll read them, and then that takes three years later, and I think oh, I'm probably a bit late to send the editor a note about that one. Um, comics, I'm I'm obsessed with comics. I've been reading comics since I was in short trousers, and I still do. Um, I get a monthly order from my, co- my a friend of mine runs a comic shop in Aberdeen. Uh, and, I, and he phones me up once a month with a pick list and any recommendations. And I send him some money. And then every three or four months, I go up to Aberdeen, pick up a big box of comics and bring them back home and, and binge on them. What so. do you think it is about, apart from it harking back to, to your childhood, what do you think it is about comics that draws you in? Is is it, or, or perhaps the question should be, and this maybe it should come later, but what have you learned about writing through the conciseness of comics? Um, a great deal, actually, because um, I started off, when I first started trying to write, um, write professionally, I wrote comic scripts, and I sent some story ideas off to 2000 AD, and they sent me back, a, this is pre-internet, so you know, an envelope full of some old Judge Dredd scripts, and instructions on how to actually construct a comic script, and it was one of some of the most useful writing advice I've ever had, and that discipline of of you know figuring out the story not just how the story works but then how it appears on the page how each i mean each pay each frame on a page is a scene in itself and it has to feed into the next one and it really concentrates on your dialogue because that's your main way of um you know moving the story on and that actually happens a lot in my prose fiction now if you read my books you'll find there's a lot of dialogue in them and the story gets moved on through dialogue and i think that comes from learning how to how to write a comic script I have a day job. Um, I'm, a, I'm a livestock farmer. Uh, I run a 350-acre livestock farm in, in northeast Fife. So my day job, I get up in the morning, I'll have some breakfast, I'll go out and check all the livestock. I've got Highland cattle and Romney sheep, uh, and that will take, depending on the time of year and what's going on on the farm, that could take up till lunchtime. Um, so I don't tend to do much writing in the morning. Um, I'm thinking about writing the whole time, and if I'm if I'm out in the tractor, I'll have my headphones on and be listening to an audio book or something like that. Um, so it's not t- wasted time at all. Um, I usually try to get some writing done during the day, but it, again, it depends on the farming routine. If if there's something that needs doing in the afternoon, um, then that comes first. Uh, with this last couple of weeks, we've been getting the sheep ready for the ram going in with the she- with the ewes. Uh, and so that's involved bringing all, gathering all the sheep, bringing them all down to the farmyard, um, giving them a dose of wormer, um, checking their feet because they their feet tend to get, you know, they they have all sorts of problems with it, and, and they have to have a foot trim. So we call it giving them their pedicure, and then they get a little bit of a trim at the back end, which you know, give them their Brazilian, <laughs> and and then they get put out with the, with the ram. So the ram's gone in now, and we can. We can pretty much forget about the sheep for the next month, just check on them every day to make sure that nobody's got stuck on their back or anything like that. So it's an easier period. I can get around the livestock quite quickly, and maybe I might even sit down at my desk at 11, 12 with a cup of coffee and get two or 300 words out before lunchtime, which I, I always like. If I can get something done in the morning, it's great because it kind of sets my brain going. And then if I have to go off and do something else, I've got that start. Because I do most of my writing in the evening, I'll tend to 
um, do any admin or whatever that needs doing in the afternoon. And there's a lot of admin on the farm, a lot of paperwork and stuff that has to be dealt with. So I'll have supper, um, you know, about half, six, seven, watch a little bit of telly with my other half, um, though it's usually just the news or something. And then I'll go upstairs and I'll sit down and I'll be at my desk by either half seven or eight o'clock. And that's when I do my mo most of my writing. And I'll I'll write just solidly from then until half ten, eleven, or, or if the if the muse has really got me, I'll carry on until about midnight. But at some point, my 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 partner will come through and say, "I'm going to bed. I've left the dogs through here, and and leave it for me to put the dogs to bed later." So that's about three hours mm. work ev every evening. Um, how how much do you reckon you'll get through in three hours if we are going to talk about word count? Is is it? Yeah, how how much in words do you reckon? In first? in words, on a good day, I'll I'll get two thousand words done. Um, at the moment, because I'm 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 sort of in the first draft of a of, of a new novel at the moment, and I'm probably about halfway through, and I'm getting a thousand to fifteen hundred words done because I'm still finding out the story for myself. Um, I'm not much of a plotter. That's probably a question you're going to ask later on. Um, but so I my first draft does tend to be me telling myself the story, working out how it's going to go. And there's a lot of, um, I don't go back and change stuff, but there's a lot of writing down notes saying, no, that that, that avenue's the wrong way to go down, uh, change that character to something else or whatever. So it's quite slow to start with. But as I get further into the book um, and I know where I'm going, uh, it, I, the word count gets gets bigger and bigger. If, I, if, if I've got a scene plotted out in my head, I can sit down and write it. I can do 1,500 words in an hour. It's no problem at all. Uh, yeah, I'm a reasonably fast typist, and it just, come, it just flows. But a lot of time is spent sitting and staring into the distance and trying not to go onto Twitter. <laughs> I think that's the case with my, most writers, yeah, from what I've learned. Um, I, I know that being a farmer is, is a full-time job in the most fullest sense of that word uh, but you know mostly seven days a week I is that the same for you while you're writing will you be there monday through sunday bashing out the words yes i always have been i've always always been a seven day a week um worker um i'm not i don't really have holidays uh which is perhaps not very healthy but it's just the way that um that i work and and yeah i mean livestock don't understand holidays and they don't understand weekends and they don't understand christmas and Easter and things like that. It's just another day. But one thing so, livestock do need, I'd imagine, is is a fairly solid routine. They yeah. need things to happen in the morning every day. As, I yeah. mean, it's mm -hmm. the first time worming sheep's ever been mentioned on this show. Um, <laughs> it's the first time for everything. <laughs> but they need this regularity. Do you think that helps you out with, with your creativity, with getting the words and your story down on the page? Uh, I think it probably does. I mean, it it gives me a it gives me a routine which otherwise I probably wouldn't have. Before I was doing, um, yeah, before I, I took on the farm, I, I've been farming for about 10 years since my dad died. Um, before I took that on, I, I worked as a, an agricultural consultant and I was living down in Wales. And that was a kind of a nine to five job. And it was quite tricky having done a nine to five job to then think, right, well now I'm gonna write some stuff in the evening because it, the temptation is just to cook supper, have a beer, sit in front of the telly but I did after a while get into the habit of of mainly because there was nothing on the telly going upstairs and just sitting at my desk and writing and I think that's where it started actually so when I came to take on the farm um it made sense in the evenings there was there was you know once I'd done the farm work 
rather than switch on the telly. I'd I'd sit down, switch on my computer, and start writing. So that's the start of your writing career. If you were to fast forward to the end of it, or to, mm-hmm. to to the end of your farming life right now, do you, is the goal to just be a full time writer, or because of the way the farm is, it's, it's I, in well, your family? It's in the it's a family farm. It's a quite a difficult thing to walk away from. I I I, I was asked this question yesterday, and I was doing a a, a, a library group, um, a reading group um, meeting, and. and and someone said, you know, would you would you go full time? And I said, my my dream was to be able to go to my boss and say, take your job and shove it. Um, it's but, hard when you're your own boss. Yeah, I'd but exactly when when it, when the time finally came, when I was, you know, I got my big breakthrough um, publishing deal, and it was like I could afford to give up my job. I was self-employed, and 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 running a family farm, and I didn't I didn't particularly want to give it up. And um, what I have done uh, is I've I've cut back the livestock numbers. Uh, when my dad was running the farm, we had 500 ewes and 50 breeding cows. I've got 50 ewes, so a tenth of the number, and I've got 19 breeding cows, but probably only about 15, 16 of them going to the bull for various reasons. So it's a it's it's a fraction uh, of the numbers, which means I can get round everything a lot quicker, and I'm not completely exhausted at the end of the day. You're speaking to someone who very rarely does any physical exertion at all i mean i run a podcast what do you find more satisfying or are they not really equatable Uh, three days of solid labor they're differently satisfying um three days of solid labor well i haven't done for a long time so and i'm quite glad of that um there is something very satisfying to getting any job completed. So it's it's you know you get to the end of the line and that you, you you put you push the last you outside and say off you go, um, and that's like job done. That's satisfying. And it's the same when you get to the end of a chapter or you get to the end of a draft and it's like job done. That's really satisfying. The actual doing it is hell though. Uh, I think it's Dorothy Parker who says I I, I hate writing. Love having written. Um, there's nothing like the feeling of finishing something, but when you're doing it, it's just hell. Well, the idea kind of evolved, as all my story ideas do. The first thing that, that came was the character, the main character in the, the book, Constance Fairchild. And she started as a first name a long, long time ago. I, I remember having a conversation with another writer about character names, and, and he wanted a character name that reflected the character, so someone who was... Um, really steadfast and, and reliable would be called Constance um, and we got talking about how it would be funny to, fun to do that ironically as well so you could have someone who was not you know someone who was completely unreliable a bit ditzy um, and, and, and flighty and call her Constance and and you could have someone who, who was really irritable and wanting to get on with things and call her Patience and things like that. And I just remembered that conversation. It must have been about 10 years ago. And I always wanted to write a character called Constance, but have her not be. And when I... I, I used to be published by Penguin, and I've just recently moved to Headline. And one of the things that we would agree to do when I moved to Headline was to write a new series. And so I was coming up with an idea for a completely new series... And I remembered this conversation and this name, Constance. So I thought, well, I'm going to have a detective called Constance, but she's going to be anything but. Uh, but as I wrote this, the character, as she started to come out, she completely changed. I mean, she became a very constant, a very reliable and steadfast character anyway. Uh, but I started with that name. And because she was called Constance, I was thinking, well, that's kind of a... Um, 
oh, what's the what's the phrase they use? It's a grace name or whatever. You have you know, there's a sort of family tradition of calling your children things like faith and hope and charity and constance and earnest and benevolence and all these and verity and all these things. And and I thought, well, what kind of family does that? And it's a very historied family, uh, and and that then made me think about. Um, you know, sort of a, a vaguely aristocratic family, but she's a detective, um, which isn't doesn't really fit in with that. I didn't want to have a, a Lord Peter Whimsy type thing mm. going on. So I, so then that may, meant that the character had to have fought against her her, her background. Um, so she had to be a reason for that, and and it, it just sparking the character off that, um, and then the story then came out of really my exploring her background as much as anything else as so she's a detective constable in the met okay so what's she doing uh she's working undercover uh in a small team um and the op goes wrong and that gave me my opening so the opening scene in the book is basically her going to this um this office that they're running as an undercover um part of an undercover op to find her boss dead with a bullet through his head um and then it's just a series of questions that that come on from that. What's going on? Who you know, who who did this to her, and and why? And and I was also because obviously she's a, she's a woman, so I was writing her at the point of the character point of view of a woman, and so I I was thinking about men portraying women in fiction and what they get wrong the whole time. Uh, and trying very hard not to do that, and listening to all my friends who are women and what what they're saying. What do they get wrong the whole time? Quickly, breasts, basically. <laughs> okay. uh, in 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 one word, if you there's there's a, there's a been an ongoing um, sort of discussion um, a, a, among various writers about it, and 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 there's examples of almost every literary author who's ever written a female character. Um, mentions at some point in the book their breasts in a in a you know, a male gaze way no. um and and it's something that women don't do they're just there you know and i've i've spoken to to, to, to some of my female friends and one of them that said yeah you know, the only time that she really thought about her breasts was at the end of a long day when she took off her bra and it was like, oh, God, thank God for that. And it's in a in a that you know just a sort of relaxing. Whereas if you read some of these passages, um, you know, it's, it's it's quite pornographic in some ways. These 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 you know women studying themselves in the mirror and thinking they're looking quite perky and things like that. And it, people people don't think about themselves that way. And uh, so that was the you know just not thinking about that sort of stuff when I was writing her character. Um, made it so much easier, um, but it was an interesting exercise. Um, You've decided that you want to write a female character in a way that very few males get the chance to do and have the ability to do. Then what do you do? So you've really fleshed out your character here. You've you've thought about her name. You've thought about her family. You've put her into this plot. You've already said that you're not much of a planner, but you do have a whiteboard in your writing room. Talk to me about what you do next when you've got that initial idea, that initial elevator pitch. The opening has been written. What happens next? Well, what I usually do, um, and uh, bearing in mind I'm coming to this book having written eight books in a different crime fiction series where I've got a team of detectives that I know well, um, I write that first scene and then I literally throw my detectives at it and see what happens. And and so I was kind of doing the same thing. Um, and I I worked out fairly on, early on 
um, that Constance was a bit of a loner. She's different. She's female in a male-dominated um, place. She's posh, even though she's trying to hide that as much as possible in a you know in a very working-class environment, and and because of that, she's a bit isolated. And the person who gets killed in the you know, she finds dead at the beginning is, as she describes in the opening scene, her her perhaps only friend in the force. He's gone. So suddenly she's 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 ankleless and she's she's drifting and and people are, are are blaming her for it. So that kind of gives me a dynamic in the work. She's being pushed out by her colleagues, shunned by her colleagues, or blamed by her colleagues. Um, so she just has to go and do everything for herself, and she has to you know she has to fall back on her wits to try and find out what's going on, um, and 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 who set her up because it looks increasingly like she's been set up. Um, to take the fall for this uh, and uh, that kind of just the the story just spitballed off off that so my whiteboard tended to have like Pete dead an arrow pointing to a question mark who killed him and actually that didn't get filled in until quite a lot I, you know I was like 30,000 words into the novel before I'd worked that one out um, so I don't really know where the story's going to go when I start I've got a very vague idea of how it's going to end I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with more from James Oswald in just a sec. Very quickly, before we get a top writing tip that may change the way that you work forever, I wanted to remind you of all the ways that you can get in touch with us at the show if you like what we're doing. Head to our website. You can listen to all the episodes that you may have missed so far and and you can get all the different ways to listen to them as well. You can also find out loads more about the authors that we have chatted to. Uh, Send us a message while you're on there. There's a little form to fill out. It's dead simple over at writersroutine.com and you can get pretty much daily posts uh, to help with your writing over on our Twitter page. It's also the best place to get a quick reply. You can find us on there. We are at writerspod. And we're having fun on Instagram as well with nice, glossy, jazzed up photos of the writers that we've spoke to. It's writer's routine on there. Right, it's time for a top writing tip that may change the way that you work forever. We do this more or less every week on the show. We kind of collar the writers that we've spoken to in the past just after the interview and 
wheedle out one tiny little bit of advice for you. Uh, this week it's from Tim Marshall, whose book Prisoners of Geography. It's been huge over the last few years. You can't really move at the moment for uh, tube ads for it around London. And it tells the story of how you can look at maps to predict pretty big political changes all across the world. Uh, now this tip, uh, I warn you, it's short, it's sweet, it's straight to the point, but pretty helpful, I'd say. Hello, I'm Tim Marshall. Uh, my latest book is called Divided, Why We're Living in an Age of Walls, and my writing tip is as follows. If you want to write, follow this uh, maxim or this dictum, Ask to seat, fingers to keyboard. I mean, I did warn you. You can catch up with all of that episode uh, with Tim Marshall, the full thing. It's over right now on the iTunes podcast store. You can find us on Spotify and it's there at writersroutine.com. Let's get back into it then with this week's guest, James Oswald, the farmer by day and crime writer by night. His book, No Time to Cry, it's all about a brand new character called Constance Fairchild. Now in this, uh, you'll hear what he's learned about writing from both the fantasy and the crime genres. Also how tending to cattle and sheep through the day helps him think things through. And we pick things up with that first draft, the, the vomit draft, as we've so often heard about on this show. What does he do to get it down? So my first draft is very much a vomit draft. It's just getting everything out. Uh, and quite often, I'll get to a point and realise that actually, I've 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 made a mistake. That something something doesn't add up, and, and I need to do something differently earlier on in the in, in the book to make something work. Uh, and that's at that point, I you know I, I tend not to go back and rewrite until I've finished. So I will I will just make myself a little note somewhere and say this needs to be changed in the redraft, and carry on writing as if I if I had made the change. So my first draft, if you were to read it through, would make no sense. You know, characters change sex halfway through and things like that. But I kind of impose the structure on it once I've got the finished thing, the first draft finished. Um, and it's just it's just a system that's worked for me. Uh, and I, I don't really, I never really think in terms of like the three act structure or the five act structure. Or at this point, you need to be introducing the you know, the antagonist or or, or whatever. I just do really write very organically. So you, this is what this is your ninth crime novel. novel. You eight in a, in a previous series, series Inspector I, McLean. Yeah, and I've written five fantasy novels as well as a five book fantasy series, which Penguin published as well. So, so I'm I'm just curious to, without pushing you on this, I'm curious. You must know what needs to be in a crime thriller if this is the ninth one that you have written. When you sat down to write this book, No Time to Cry, what did you know that needed to be in it? That's an interesting way of putting it. I've never really... I, I don't really think about what, what needs to be... I mean, it needs to be an adventure. There needs to be uh, you know, conflict. There needs to be peril. Uh, the, the, the main character has to be put through the ringer, so I've got to make life really difficult for her. And that's possibly the only thing I really think about it, uh, as I'm going through. You know, is this too easy? Um, okay, what's the more difficult way of doing this um, at, with each each new step of the book going on? Um, but as I say, I really do not plot very much at all. And my, you'd be astonished at how little. I, I, I do, I have my whiteboard, and I have a, a word file which I open up 
um, which I usually call thinking with my fingers, um, which is just something, that, a habit that, that I've had over the years. And I literally, I'll, I'll type out, because I find that easier than writing by hand, because my handwriting is illegible. Uh, and um, I type out ideas and work out things, you know, what's Constance going to do in the next couple of pages, she needs to do this, this and the, this. And quite often, having written that, I will then write something completely different, because <laughs> um, I'm not very good at rereading my notes. Um, so it probably wouldn't matter if I wrote them in longhand I, anyway. Um, but most of it goes on in my head, and which is, I think, again, to come back to the farming, which is why the farming is quite useful, because I can be going around and checking the livestock and things are just churning over in my head. And, 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 I'll, and, and sometimes even subconsciously, things are just, I've, I've, got, I've got to a point in the book and I'm thinking, well, I need to work out what's going to happen next. And I'll go away and I'll do a half a day of checking the livestock or moving the cows from one field to another or whatever. And I'll come back and I'll sit down and it's just there. Talk to me about the clean-up then. If the, the start is your vomit draft, mm-hmm. when, when you've got your story down, what's the first thing that you do when you're editing, when you're cleaning things up? I mean, you're nine crime I've, novels yeah. in. There must be some system. Yeah, there is a system. I've got my notes um, that I've taken whilst I've been writing, like, you know, change Jack to Jill or whatever. Um, and I I read the whole thing through to myself. And I, I, I use Scrivener. I don't know if... Scrivener is quite useful because I can see very easily that it's chapter one, scene one, scene two, scene three, or whatever, and a little description of what each scene is about. And I read the whole thing through, and I write, I have a notepad, an A4 pad by my side, and I write down a little description of each scene and a little note of what needs to be changed in it. And I go through the whole book, so it might be... You know, 60 or I think it's about 60 chapters in that book because they're quite short chapters that's another thing that I like to do I like to, short chapters short scenes I usually try to keep my scenes down to less than a thousand words each why is that because it makes the book read really quickly that's the trick to a page turner lots of chapters short scenes um, if, if we're also talking about the format of the book um, it's it's all in the first present tense yeah how much of a conscious decision is that? Why is it written in that style? That came out, uh, well, because I, I, I was very self-conscious about writing a female character. And I thought, right, the, the only way to do it properly is to completely immerse yourself in the character. So it made sense to write it from her point of view. The Tony McLean books are all f- largely written from Tony McLean's point of view, but they're third person. So McLean did this, McLean did that. But for some obscure reason, when I sat down to write the first opening scene of that, I was right in Constance's head, following her up the stairs, finding her boss, seeing her boss with a hole in his forehead and the brains spattered out on the... Uh, and, and, and it just, it worked. And I thought, yeah, this, is, this is what we need, because we need to be with her. It's her book. Um, we need to follow her around that closely. And I just carried on writing it that way. Um, I have I'd done that once before for an, an unpublished novel with a, a male protagonist, and quite liked it the way that, that as a way of writing. Um, but well, what what changes about doing it? I mean, this may be really nuanced, and there's not many changes at all, and that's fine. But as a writer, is it different telling your story when you're right there in someone's head? It is, and one of the biggest problems is you haven't got other character points of view to play off um, so um, and as I was saying earlier my books are quite um, dialogue driven 
and you it, it's a bit difficult if you're actually in the character's head completely first person to do as much dialogue so you need a mo- you need more action you need more things to do and the other thing i didn't want to be constantly um reflecting on things so um you know the endless internal monologues uh, are, are get really boring after all, that, I, that was one of the things I found with my fantasy series. Um, the first draft of the first book in the fantasy novel, there were endless internal monologues, lots and lots of introspection by the main character, who was a dragon as it happened, but that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really matter. Um, and it was really boring, and you know, there wasn't actually very much happening. It was just lots and lots of this character you know, bemoaning life or whatever, and and I, I learned from that as you do. You know, a, a friend of mine pointed out to me that this was really boring. I read it and thought, yeah, you're right, it is really boring. And you move on and you you start writing differently. And writing Constance from a first person point of view um, meant that you got a few of her, her her a bit of her internal thinking, but it's posed also. Or it's not Constance thought this. It's like, what's this? Um, yeah, actually written in there as a question uh, and it makes it much more immediate you think about the the language she's going to use the the you know she's quite well educated so she you know she has a certain amount of of sort of learned intelligence and uh, her vocabulary is larger than the maybe the average beat coppers i don't know but uh, that she has a way of speaking and a way of thinking um which is different to some of the other characters in the books. But she, she is curiously quite sweary, which is something I have noticed about um, some of the, 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 um, you know, the, the posh girls that I've met growing up, that, that they were quite casual about dropping the F-pom. Um, so is that considered from you then, or, or did you yeah. know that she was going to be sweary? Yeah, t- I think she, 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 she was always going to be... She was, she's basically un, uninhibited... In that res- respect, she she doesn't care what other people think about her. So if she feels like swearing because she's really pissed off about something, then she will. Um, and so she, and she, and she, that's kind of also a, fi- a fighting against her her upbringing because obviously swearing, casual swearing like that, is something that her parents would most definitely frown upon and and you know berate her for. And likewise, the she went to a posh private school and, and would have been beaten for 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 anything like that. So. Um, so that's kind of a you know a fighting against that as well. You're an author and a farmer. Mm. You live up in Scotland. Um, you've worked in in Wales mm. in, in agriculture. It's a far cry from the the, mm. the corrupt Met Police that you're writing about. How did you go about researching this? Now I get into a lot of trouble here because I do very little research, certainly procedural research. Um, for any of my books, I've written nine books now in the Inspector McLean series, which are marketed as police procedurals. I've never spoken to a police officer about any aspect of the fiction. Um, you can learn the basics by watching the bill or reading the books of, of other great authors who've also probably learned most of it from reading the books of other great authors. Um, I, I'm one of these truly lazy people who put a lot of effort into being lazy. Uh, and... Uh, I, I don't. I, I'm also a little bit shy about and, and nervous about going to the police and asking them questions. I don't want to waste their time, uh, and so I've kind of developed a strategy of working around it. And you'll find in that book, she's a police officer. She's working in a small team undercover. We don't even name what department that's in. 
she works out of a, 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 an anonymous police station in a part of London that, that's not ever... We don't say that it's in, you know, it's not Bethnal Green or something. It's just a police station somewhere. She lives in a part of London in an ex, you know, rented ex-council flat. Um, but I never say exactly where that is. Uh, it's just generic. And I'm not really interested in tying the story down to absolute police procedure and parts of London. I don't know London well enough. Do you think it matters, though? I don't think it does. And I mean, unless an aspect of the story absolutely turns on something being totally accurate, I don't think it does matter. Um, and I, I, I do sometimes get a bit frustrated with this myth that, that crime fiction is meti- always meticulously researched and, and things like CSI and The Bill, they have specialists in who make sure that they're getting everything right. No, they have specialists in who make sure that they're getting everything plausible. I did a, a big panel interview thing uh, at um, Bloody Scotland, which is a crime fiction festival in Stirling, last year with Dame Professor Sue Black, the forensic pathologist. And uh, it was great fun, um, though I was slightly terrified that she was going to take apart my forensic knowledge, <laughs> which is non-existent. Um, but actually, I was chatting to her, and the thing that frustrates her most, because she's you know one of the country's most foremost um, experts on forensic pathology, she gets asked to be an expert witness at trials a lot, and she explains in com- you know, complex stuff in layman's terms to, to juries. Uh, and then they don't believe her because they've seen it on CSI. They, they think they're experts because they've 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 read a, a couple of crime novels or they've seen the bill. Uh, and and it's really really frustrating because there's this myth that that we're writing stuff which is true to life. We're not. We're making up stories to entertain. And as long as they're plausible, as long as you don't have your police doing something which they would obviously not do, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter that it's not how it. It's not reality. That is it then for this week's writer's routine. Thank you so much to James Oswald. You can find out loads more about his book, No Time to Cry, right now over at writersroutine.com. And while you're there, uh, you can send us a message to let us know what you think about the show. If you've got any authors that you would like me to chat to, maybe you're a writer yourself, you want to come on here and plug your wares, that's fine. You can send a message over at writersroutine.com. Uh, If you've enjoyed the show as well, remember the best thing that you can do to help us out is to leave us a review over on the iTunes podcast store. You can follow us on Twitter at WritersPod, Instagram WritersRoutine. And that's it from us for 2018. Have a fantastic break uh, and an exceedingly Merry Christmas. I will see you in the new year with more writing routines. Thank you very much. We'll see you then. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.